Welcome to Taiwan on Hair. Konjong Trebo Taiwan. Hello everyone. This is Lara Momesso, one of the hosts of this podcast series. And today we are here for the book chat. Today's guest is Professor David Feld, the director of the Center of Taiwan Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. Welcome to our book chat podcast, David. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on the show for the first time. Thank you very much, David, for agreeing to be with us today. Let me firstly introduce you to our audience. Professor David Fels' main research interest focuses on Taiwan political parties and electoral politics. He published a first book on this theme in 2005, and since then he has been a prolific author on Taiwan's party system, new party, party switching, candidate selection, and post-election reflections. Professor David Fels' contribution to the field of Taiwan studies has been important not only at SOAS, where he teaches, but also more broadly in UK and internationally. David's last book is Taiwan's Green Parties, Alternative Politics in Taiwan, and was published by Routledge in 2021. This book is the result of regular fieldworks in Taiwan, the observation that David took, I guess, most probably since his first time he was there in the 1980s, and also the interviews he carried out with Green Party's representatives in the last 10 years. Before entering into the specificity of this book, I would like to ask David what is so interesting in Taiwan electoral politics to keep you glued on it for more than 20 years? Well, I think it all goes back to my first visit to Taiwan as an undergraduate language student back in 1989 to 1990. And then I experienced my first Taiwanese election campaign. And to someone used to quite dry and dull European campaigns, I think the Taiwanese campaign just seemed so loud, so colourful, almost festival-like. And that really kind of got me hooked. And then I lived in Taiwan for much of the 1990s and experienced the way that Taiwan's democracy evolved. And some elements of the elections I found really exciting. For example, election ad TV ads. Again, they seemed so more kind of interesting compared to the dull party political broadcast that we're used to in the UK. And that later would become a key resource in my research, just doing content analysis of Taiwanese election ads, many of which had a lot of uh, humour in them. And I often use those election ads in my teaching as well as in my research. So to me, I think probably coming from a European background had a big impact in why I find this topic so interesting. But I think it also has academic importance as well. The quality of electoral debate, I think, is really important in Taiwan. I think it's, we can see a connection between electoral debate and the way that Taiwan has become more progressive over time. So, for example, when I first came to Taiwan, it had a very unfair welfare system. A lot of people were excluded from health insurance, for example. A lot of people were excluded from pensions. But as a result of electoral debate in the 1990s and into the 2000s, what we've seen is a much more universal welfare system. And I think that in itself is a product of Taiwan's electoral politics. So it's more than just the kind of the horse race angle. I think it really has implications for the quality of Taiwan's democracy. Thank you very much, David. I'm sure that if uh, any 
European or Westerners has been to Taiwan during a electoral campaign can really understand what you mean in terms of how different is the environment if compared to, to European countries or what we are used over here in Europe. And I think that's one of the reasons why I always encourage my students to go to Taiwan and actually experience what those elections are like. So in these local elections we had in November, I got some emails with photographs from students who were saying, now I really understand what you mean by Taiwanese election rallies. <laughs> so I think you can write about it, but it's hard to recreate it in words. I think you really have to be there. Yeah, I completely agree. So, David, let's move to your book now and tell us how you came about to write this book on green parties, parties that have never won a seat in national election and they won only a handful of seats in county and municipal elections. So why is it important to study these parties in Taiwan? It was never my plan to write a book on Taiwan's green parties. My first book was mainly focused on Taiwan's mainstream parties, the Kuomintang and the Democratic Progressive Party. But as part of that research, one of my party cases was the New Party, which is a small party. And it really kind of fascinated me the way that this smaller party would do things that seemed like electoral suicide. They would do things that didn't seem rational from the perspective of a mainstream party. So after I finished my first book, I started to do some research on Taiwan's small parties. But that was much broader, looking at multiple parties. And in the end, it was something quite accidental. I was quite interested in the case of one of my students at SOAS. And back, let me see, in 2011, she just graduated from SOAS. She just submitted her dissertation. And then a couple of weeks later, she was standing for the Green Party in a national election. And that caught my attention. How could you kind of go from being a student to being a national parliamentary candidate in just a couple of weeks. And later she went on to become the chairperson of the Green Party Taiwan. And she asked if I'd be interested in doing some research, maybe to look at suggestions for how the party could improve. And that led me to do some focus groups in Taiwan on Taiwan's Green Parties almost exactly 10 years ago. That was in December of 2012. And I found it so these focus groups so different from the mainstream parties I was used to working with. The fact that these people were just so passionate, idealistic, so angry about often what seemed like quite small issues. I became really interested. And the more I got into the topic, the more I felt that just writing a couple of book chapters or journal articles wasn't enough. And over that maybe seven, eight year period, I built up a lot of data. And I felt that I just needed to find that time to turn this into a book. And when it came to actually writing the book, it was a lot easier than, for example, writing the PhD. But it just took me a long time to actually be ready to kind of sit down and kind of convert that data into a manuscript. But the second part of your question was asking about why we should kind of spend a decade. And now I'm over a decade because I don't want to stop this project. I think there's a number of reasons that I think make the Green Party interesting. I think, firstly, it's often been a pioneer in Taiwan's party system. In other words, it's been willing to stress issues that other parties didn't dare to touch. Things like calling for abolishing the death penalty, which is something that really goes against public opinion, but which Green parties internationally support abolition. One of its core issues throughout the party's history has been opposition to nuclear power which I think that was one of the founding issues. And the fact that we're finally moving towards Taiwan becoming a nuclear-free state, I think does show the impact or importance of the party. 
But I think it also has a gender angle. For example, it was the first party to have a female party leader. And it was the first party to openly advocate LGBT rights when mainstream parties were quite scared of of this issue. It was the first party to have LGBT candidates. Again, that was over 10 years ago. It's also the most international of Taiwan's parties. Taiwan's political parties like the KMT or the DEP, they join these international party families. But the Green Party is the only one who really takes that international engagement seriously. So an example of this is that a Green Party member who was at that first focus group that I did 10 years ago, she actually goes on to become the global Greens convener. So the convener of all the Green Parties in the world. So there, Taiwan has a place in the international community where China is excluded, which I think is is really quite interesting. I mean, you touched upon the fact that the Green Party hasn't been so successful electorally. And I think you're right there. But I think actually explaining failure I think is a really interesting thing to do as a political scientist, particularly when failure was never inevitable. And that's one of the key things that I argue in the book, the fact that if different strategies had been adopted, maybe the outcome would have been quite different. And I think another thing I would add is that, and it's something that's come up in some of the book reviews, that actually Taiwan has a very successful environmental movement, probably much more successful than, in some ways more successful than the UK environmental movement. If we think about things like nuclear power, where we're just not talking about nuclear power in the UK. We were when I was a teenager, for example, but it's not really a salient issue. But in Taiwan, that's so different. The way that that environmental movement, together with groups like the Green Party, have actually kept that issue on the agenda and finally seen the fourth nuclear power station defeated. So to me, that is a mark of success. Uh, And maybe the last thing I'd add then is that I think movement parties add something quite different to a party system. They bring in different issues. And to me, I think that brings more diversity into the party system. Even if they don't get elected, they're putting these different issues on the agenda. They're trying to influence the mainstream parties. So we just look at things like same-sex marriage and the way that the DP did eventually move on that issue. But it took time. If there hadn't been the LGBT rights movement together with their political representatives, I don't think this would have happened so soon. Yeah, thank you. It's really the relevance of peripheries, those at the margin that eventually change the center through pressure and by indeed bringing in matters that are not relevant for those who who are in a dominant position or who are in a center. Very interesting perspective. I do have another question about the relevance of the Green Party's beyond Taiwan. So how is your book and your analysis relevant beyond the case of Taiwan? You kind of already hinted, but maybe if you want to reiterate it and make it clearer. Well, I think that kind of touches upon one of the big challenges we face as scholars in the Taiwan studies field. How do we actually make our work interesting and relevant to non-Taiwan specialists? And I think we all have our different ways of dealing with that challenge. The way I try to do that in this book is to connect Taiwan to political science theories on small parties, to look at whether these kind of theories and frameworks work on the Taiwan case. So I'm trying to kind of speak that language of small party studies, as well as trying to engage with studies on international green parties. One example of the way that I tried to do this was a a panel that I organized uh, last summer whereby I got a group of authors who had written books on Green Parties from different countries, from Japan, Germany, Canada, as well as the former Global Greens convener. 
So we had a panel just talking about our experience of writing books on Green Parties. One of the things I've really enjoyed about doing the book tour of this book is actually going outside the kind of Taiwan studies or Asian studies kind of community and trying to talk to different audiences. For example, going to a a local Green Party branch in southern England who have no kind of background in Taiwan and trying to tell them the story and trying to find commonalities in the Taiwan case. I think one of the things that we can see when we look at, for example, the background of Green Party supporters, Green Party members and Green Party activists is that actually the Taiwanese Green Party members and supporters look very similar to those of European Green Party supporters. They tend to be more progressive on, for example, gender issues. They tend to be urban, well-educated, younger, and they tend to have social movement or civil society experience. So they're one of the reasons why I think this book, I think, translates to an international readership. I think that it is possible. I think we can kind of reach beyond our kind of regular audience. And I think that's one of the ways that we can kind of make our field more sustainable, looking for those different linkages and different angles. And if we can do that, I think we can reach a much broader audience. Yes, I completely agree. I think it's also a little bit a responsibility we have as specialists in Taiwan studies to spread the voice and go beyond our comfort zone, right? Good. Uh, David, I have another question. Now I want to bring the audience back to what has been happening in Taiwan for the last couple of months. We just had the 9-in-1 elections, local elections. The results were quite predictable, I would say. So the KMT was the main winner with 13 city mayor and county magistrate positions, if I am correct. The DPP went down from seven to five positions. And also the Taiwan People's Party won seat in Sinju. Then we have two positions that went to independent parties. So my question is, how did the Green parties do in these elections? And how is it comparable to previous years? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting election in, in many ways. Usually what happens at this stage of the political cycle is that the ruling party should do very badly. If we go back to the DUP, uh, to the Chen era, they had a disaster in 2005. And Maidu has a disaster in 2014. Compared to those previous precedents, the ruling party does quite well, I think, in 2022. So it looks more like what I would call a maintaining election. It's not an earthquake election, for example. And if we look, for example, at a different level, if we look at the city and county council level, actually the DP does very well. It's probably second best ever local results and one of the worst ever results for the KMT at that important uh, level. The other thing that I was watching very closely in this campaign was the referendum on lowering the voting age, which I think is a really important issue. And it also kind of challenges our kind of stereotype of Taiwan being this super progressive society, when actually a, a significant number of older voters vote against something that seems like something that we would take for granted in most democracies, particularly if we consider the fact that South Korea and Japan have moved on lowering the voting age over the last decade or so. But Taiwan here is lagging behind, which I think is quite interesting. I know it's something that my students were watching quite closely. One of the other things that I was paying a lot of attention to in this election was how would the smaller parties do, particularly the political parties that come out of social movements, which is the focus of the Green Party's book, but I was trying to think about it a little bit more broadly because we have a number of, of these kind of what I call movement parties. And overall, 
what seems to have happened this time was that movement parties did quite poorly. So it wasn't just the Green Party, but also the new power party. And even the Taiwan State Building Party didn't have a good election result. So it looks like the space has been squeezed for these smaller parties. Part of the problem is there's too many of them. And they're not working together. So that feel, that market for alternative politics is becoming more competitive. And they really need to find a way of working together. Sometimes it's a matter of the mainstream parties squeezing the space for them. For example, often mainstream parties will poach politicians from these smaller parties. So, for example, I mentioned how the student who invited me to start this project from SOAS, she was later poached by the DUP or the leader of the Social Democratic Party, who many of us know in the, in the Taiwan studies field, Fan Yun, who was a key student leader and then a gender studies or social movement scholar. She was also poached by the DUP. So the DUP often will kind of undermine the human resources of these smaller parties, which is good and bad. The bad side is it hollows them out, but the good side is that it makes the mainstream party more progressive. Now, the other thing that you mentioned in your question was about the Taiwan People's Party, which did win a few local seats in its first local election. It's an interesting case because it's trying to kind of frame itself as an alternative to the, the two big parties. But from the perspective of Taiwanese civil society, it doesn't really feel like the answer. In other words, ideologically and also on, on many issues, it feels like quite a conservative party even though it tries to brand itself as a young party. It puts a lot of emphasis on packaging, but I'm not really sure if its content is. I know that, for example, Brian Hugh has talked about it being just another pan-blue party, and it has attempted to recruit the kind of politicians that would normally stand for uh, the KMT or the PFP. But its appearance, I think, has also contributed to the limited space of the other smaller parties. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the 2024 elections for these smaller parties. I think it's going to be quite a challenging campaign for them, unless they can find a way of working together. Thank you, David, for this in-depth analysis. So your book with the 2020 elections, right, you eventually publish it a year after. I wonder, would you change anything or how would you revise your book in light of this last leg in local elections? It's a good question. I think it's, it's always a bit of a challenge when you finish a book about do you just leave it there or do you try and build on it? And originally I was expecting to start the next project much sooner. But this time I found it quite difficult. I think one reason is that I've spent a lot of time and effort trying to share the research findings uh, of this book. I think I've done about 40 different talks over the last 18 months related to the book, which is something I didn't do. I didn't do a single book talk for my first book. But I feel that when you put so much effort into uh, writing a book, I think it's quite important to try and share those results to very kind of different audiences. At the end of the book, I talk about the possibility of a second edition, but I think that I need a bit of space there. But what I have been doing almost since the book came out has been working on a, a Chinese version of the book. And rather than a translation, we're rewriting it together with three different Taiwanese academics. So they're Peng Yanwen at National Sun Yat-sen University, Zhang Zhuqin in National Taiwan University, and Wang Yanhan, who just graduated from National Jinja University. And all three of them are former Green Party leaders, former Green Party candidates, and from different periods in the party's history. 
So for me, it's been really interesting trying to work on this co-authored book and looking at what needs to be changed, what needs to be expanded. And the idea is also we want to try and write for a different type of readership. The idea is to, I think we've been quite impressed with the way that Lampagia has really been marketing and reaching quite a different audience with some of her books. That's part of the model that we're thinking about. So making it less academic and maybe also expanding areas which we felt hadn't been dealt with sufficiently in the original English language book. For example, I think we didn't have enough on gender. And I think there were a few places where my authors felt that my anger was too, maybe not patriarchal, but a little bit too focused on male leaders. That's something that well, I think we're going to have a chapter on the gender side of the party rather than just kind of integrating it into the main body of the book. But for me, it's really interesting learning how to let go for something that you feel quite passionate and kind of belongs to you. And so for me, that's really quite interesting because I think co-authoring is not an easy thing to do. As I probably mentioned earlier, I think there's still a lot more to do. And I am going to go to Taiwan briefly over the Christmas break. So one of the things I'd like to do is to maybe see if I can talk to some Taiwanese audiences. I've done a few online talks, but I'd be quite keen to kind of talk to Green Party members, for example, in Taiwan. Because I think few of them have actually read the book. So I'd be very keen to know how they respond, for example, to the final chapter, which talks about suggestions, for example, how the party could improve its performance and whether those suggestions are just too academic or they could really work in real world politics. I'm also quite excited about seeing my kind of co-authors face to face after a year of kind of online discussions. Thank you. The feed is actually very inspiring for anyone who is working on a book or academics in general. This idea that book is, yes, it's something you finish, but it's a step to what's next. And what's next is not necessarily the same of what you were before or what you were doing before is actually enriching your own professional development as well, right? By including, for example, as you said, academics, but also professionally in the field. So that's really very interesting. Thank you. So a uh, very last question for you, David, and is linked to the conclusion of your book. You state at the very end of your book, we will have to wait and see whether the Green Party fulfills its potential and makes its long-awaited breakthrough into the national parliament. So what do you think is missing to get there? And do you think that in the next national elections, there is a chance to achieve this aim? In the last chapter, I felt kind of cautiously optimistic. I could see some positive signs. In other words, the way that the party was trying to kind of rebuild bridges with, for example, social movements who had been alienated by the party in the run-up to the 2020 election. So for me, that was a positive sign because I think a Green Party or a movement party needs to have something different. It needs to have those kind of progressive voices. It needs to be the voice of, let's say, trade unions or environmental groups. Without that, then it's no different from a, a mainstream party. So for me, that's something important, even though there's often a kind of an argument between do we take the election route or the social movement route? I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. But as you mentioned, the local election results, I think, were quite a setback for movement parties. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how they react to this uh, result. Will they kind of learn the right lessons? Can they find a way of creating some kind of alliance? So we saw a, an, a kind of alliance in the 2016 campaign where the Social Democrats and the Green Party worked together. 
So I think something like that is needed, but it probably needs to be a bit broader. And whether or not these suggestions that I make in the final chapter are going to work, again, I think that's something that I'm going to try and test when I'm in Taiwan, if they're willing to listen. And maybe my ideas are just ivory tower ideas, but I try and frame them as being based on the analysis of the book. So I think they're based on empirical data. And I think it does really matter. As I mentioned earlier, I think that Taiwan's party system needs diversity. It needs these kind of marginalized voices to get some kind of representation in parliament that I think enriches Taiwan's democracy uh, rather than just being the same old KMT and and DUP. And I think if we think back to the Sunflower Movement, for example, I think one of the reasons why it emerges back in 2014 is that sense of alienation from those mainstream parties. And I think it's much better to actually have these kind of voices in parliament than outside. In other, I think you've got to have them on both outside and inside parliament, but I think it's much better if they can enter. Of course, the DUP will try to absorb these forces, which I think is, is a, um, a good thing, but often they can become overwhelmed when they get inside the DUP. So that you've got to have that third force, a real progressive third force to um, push for further change. I'm hopeful. And for me, it's really exciting looking at an angle of Taiwanese civil society which I think is, again, is something really special. I think Taiwan civil society is a real success story that we often forget when we just focus on things like cross-strait relations or mainstream political parties. I know it's something that my students find really interesting and often quite inspiring to hear these stories of successful social movement campaigns. I remember at the end of one of my classes, my Taiwan politics courses, one of my students saying that the thing that she most got from my course was the fact that in Taiwan, protest really matters. Maybe in the UK, we're so used to protest failing, and then we see protest actually achieving change in Taiwan. And for me, I think that's really an inspiring story to tell. Yes, indeed. I completely agree with your points, David. So, David, thank you very much for being with us today and enlightening as uh, with regard to these other alternative aspects of Taiwan political debates and Taiwan politics. Let me remind to our audience the title of your fascinating book, Taiwan's Green Party's Alternative Politics in Taiwan. It was published by Routledge in 2021. I hope that many of our listeners have been inspired by this book chat. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye, Lara, and see you in January in Preston. Yeah, thank you very much.